Let's start with this thought. How grateful are we that the Bible is gritty? That it is real? It hasn't been, it hasn't been scrubbed. It hasn't been cleaned up. And passages like this one are a reminder to us. They should give us confidence that it is authentic and that it has been preserved. If editors had come by later, this passage or ones like it get scrubbed out or at least polished up. Right after one of the most unifying events in church history, the Jerusalem Council that we've been looking at the last couple weeks, where we're told now that after this event that brought unity, that strengthened the church, that brought encouragement, that two now of its primary, most influential leaders have such conflict that they part ways, seemingly in anger, frustration, perhaps bitterness. The word that Luke uses, the, 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 the word sharp, a sharp disagreement arose between Paul and Barnabas. That word uh, is similar to the word for sickle. And it often connotes a violent type dispute. And whether this actually came to blows or whether it was just a, a, a heated verbal dispute, nonetheless, this is not a shining moment for Paul and Barnabas or for the church. And certainly seems striking and out of place considering what just happened for the Jerusalem Council. So if you've read ahead, or you've been aware of this passage and you find yourself furrowing your brow or scratching your head, you're not alone. When the whole church seemingly was unified in agreement for the first time, encouraged, now this. Disagreement. Division. And then if we pause and we kind of reflect on the bigger picture, we say, are we really that surprised? We could look into our own experience too, I suppose. We have an enemy who is actively at work seeking to divide and distract and sow seeds of doubt. He's always prowling around just looking for someone to devour. And so when he set about trying to split the church and that seemingly failed, he's now at work trying to split at least two key leaders. He always seems to strike where it could have the biggest impact. Trying to divide Husbands and wives, families, elders within a church. And seemingly, he seems to have a, a, at least a small victory here. They do part ways. Until you kind of read the rest of the story, and you see God's redemption even through this. In two ways. One, now we have, we have two missionary teams going out proclaiming the gospel instead of just one. Now, maybe on the surface, we see that immediate redemption. Second, we also could read and fast forward to somewhat the end of the story, where all three of these men, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, are reconciled. They honor one another's ministry. They go on to great things. John Mark ends up writing a gospel that bears his name, that being Mark. Paul would later affirm both of their ministries. In, in Colossians chapter 4, Paul commends John Mark to the church to receive him when he comes. 
And maybe the most striking, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is recognized as probably the last writing that we have of Paul's. So very, very toward the end of his life. And he's writing to Timothy. And he said in, in Tim, 2 Timothy 4.11 that Luke alone is with me. So Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me in my ministry. Well, something changed over the course of those years that found that they would be reconciled and give honor and adulation to one another's ministry. So there is redemption and there is, there is healing and there is God's hand still at work even through this division. And so we say, thank you, Luke, for writing the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for preserving the Scriptures that gives us confidence Man, we, we have in our hands what was originally written. That's not the issue. The issue may be how we respond to it and receive it. But we have the authentic, preserved Word of God. And we thank You, Jesus, for being our Savior and our Redeemer, our Healer and our Restorer and working despite even our worst moments, even in and through our weaknesses, even redeeming what might be sin in our own lives. But just because God redeemed it and used it, we also need to recognize this doesn't mean He ordained it. That They should not have had this kind of disagreement. Even if the Holy Spirit was nudging them to go separate ways, to multiply in their efforts, which would be idle speculation. It happened but we don't know that God actually ordained it and it seems that this should have been avoided. And we need to remember that though these are men that were easily put upon pedestals, the best of men, they are men at best. They're not angels. And we see conflict like this and we often want to take sides, don't we? So who was right? Who was at least more right? And maybe with our head we side with Paul and with our heart we probably side with Barnabas. But as is true in just about every conflict, especially within the church, there's probably right and wrong that can be equally distributed. And so just because God redeemed it doesn't mean that He ordained it. Perhaps Paul should have taken his own counsel that he wrote to the Ephesian church years later. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, "...with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bear with one another in love." being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And we say, well, that doesn't jibe well with the words here that Luke shows us. Maybe this reflects Paul's growth himself. Lessons he learned over the years. Grief that maybe he carried for previous actions when he was younger. My friend and the current president of our movement, the Alliance, John Stumbo, he says that, that God's Word can often feel like balm to our souls, but it often can feel like sandpaper as well. And I would add, thank you, Jesus, for the sandpaper of your Word that smooths out the rough edges in our life, that we are yet works in progress. If Paul if Barnabas, if John Mark were not done being refined and growing, then who are we to think we've arrived? Well, since we don't 
truly know much about this conflict, and so we're hard-pressed to really take sides in it. It's another example of the Bible tells us all we need to know, but not necessarily all we want to know. I, I don't want to spend a majority of the time in idle speculation, but in hopeful application. But at least we can rewind. There's a, a glimpse of this, of this event, which maybe not all of us are aware of. If you haven't been tracking with us in our study or you've simply forgotten because it was weeks ago, in Acts 13, verse 13, we have, and following, we have this event that has essentially caused this later division. Paul and his companions, that would be Barnabas and John Mark, who were on the, fir- the first missionary journey, having been sent out from the Antioch church, they set sail from Paphos, that was in uh, Cyprus, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And then we have this little line, and John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga, came to Antioch and Pisidia, and they went on in ministry, and we studied that. But if not for Acts 15 and what we've just heard read here, we might have we've forgotten about that little line or just assumed that all was well. Well, we don't know why he parted, but they parted ways. And yet this caused such a division later when Barnabas wanted to give him a second chance. That makes sense for Barnabas, doesn't it? Son of encouragement. I mean, second chances, redemption, kind of core to the gospel, wouldn't you think? And by the way, uh, Barnabas and John Mark were blood-related, either cousins or uncle-nephew. It's a little unclear, but they are related and so that makes sense. But whatever the, whatever the reason, whether John Mark at, at this point uh, was tired or sick or fearful of the, of the journey ahead or the dangers of going over the mountain pass, which was a significant uh, faith-filled risk on their part, whether he simply missed family or there was some news that came to him of a, of a situation or an emergency that he felt he needed to depart the team, whatever, whatever the reason Paul took exception. Paul believed that he had deserted them, had abandoned them. Look at verse 38 of of Acts 15. Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them and would not go on in the work. It's the way Luke describes it. And, And many believe that whatever the reason was, idle speculation, some form of even disagreement and conflict, that John essentially quit on them. Eugene Peterson, in his commentary slash paraphrase of the Scripture, he, he captures it this way, that Barnabas wanted to take John Mark along, but Paul didn't want, wouldn't have him. He wasn't about to take along a quitter who, as soon as the going got tough, had jumped ship on them in Pamphylia, and tempers flared, and they ended up going separate ways. And many commentators tend to agree that this was more than just an assumed good reason to withdraw and, hey, I'll catch, you, I'll catch up with you later. This was a withdrawing. Having counted the cost of the work, at least all of them did that. We know this will require much of us and demand much, and it's a faith-filled mission, and we're ready to give all. And they all kind of agreed to that and were sent off. Now one of them is changing his mind, and Paul as relentless as we know Paul was in the ministry of reaching the lost and proclaiming the gospel, it's not hard to imagine that maybe he wasn't as empathetic of the team's needs as a Barnabas was. 
And here's kind of my best assumption at this, and you can have your own. You're free to do that. We don't know. But I'm wondering if they arrived at a town and Paul's like, okay, tomorrow morning we're up and we're over the mountains. And John Mark is like, time out, dude. We're, we're weary, we're worn, we're tired. Look, we're sick. They had, they, they, we know that they were sick at various times in their journey and needed to rest and be cared for. Let's rest here a few days and then let's go. And then Paul says, dude, we can rest in heaven. We are going tomorrow. We were on, the, or to, can't you kind of see that disagreement and whatever happened in that moment, whether John Mark simply said, then go on ahead, I can't, I can't continue now. And so they go on ahead and he withdraws. We don't know. We don't, also don't know if Paul ultimately dwelt on this conflict. We can't assume that bitterness grew as it often does within us when there's conflict that isn't resolved and we let it go and bitterness grows. We don't know that, but we, we do know that it was not resolved. Whether that was intentioned by Paul, okay, we'll get, we'll get to it, we'll resolve, we'll pick this back up, or whether there was an assumption made either by, by any party that this wasn't that big of a deal, so we'll just, let it, we'll just let it slide. Now we see what happens without resolving conflict. It emerges again, it comes out again in a sharp disagreement that now divides Paul and Barnabas, when before it was, it was Paul and John Mark that had the conflict, and now Barnabas comes into the mix and they fight about it a little bit, however that were, went, went down. Apparently, Paul didn't think that John Mark had changed at all. Apparently, Paul hasn't changed either. So growth opportunities for both. And it's not hard to kind of imagine this. I, I, I hear Paul. The stakes are high. The mission is serious. The cost is significant. We need to count on one another I need to know we're in the trenches together and I can't trust John Mark to be there when the going gets tough. Enough idle speculation. How about some hopeful application? Just in case you could use encouragement or help in conflict resolution. Just hypothetically, you have some form of dispute, disagreement, or conflict going on in your life or have had that needs to yet be resolved or potentially could come in the day ahead or days ahead. Maybe that foreshadow, I don't know. And some of you would probably prefer that I preach on avoiding conflict because resolving conflict is work. It's hard. It requires repentance and reconciliation and recompense often. Wouldn't it be easier altogether to just avoid conflict in the first place? That would be a, that would be a powerful message. So here, here it is. This is what it would sound like. Protect yourself, point one. Guard your heart. Keep most people at arm's length. Isolate yourself. Never get too close or share too much. And by all means, for heaven's sake, don't get passionate about anything. We pray and amen. Okay, doesn't quite line up. Doesn't quite feel right. What we know for sure is conflict happens, and we could preach message after message on conflict avoidance and know that it still isn't going to work, is it? We don't need Acts 15 to show us that conflict happens amongst brothers and sisters or amongst passionate people. 
And I, maybe there's some wry encouragement that we're not alone in this. Okay, if Paul and Barnabas and Mark could have conflict, well, then I guess we're in good company. You can't be engaged in the body of Christ or have passion for his mission and avoid conflict. Not only because we have an enemy at work against us seeking to divide or distract or devour or cause doubt, but because we have sin within us and self-centeredness and pride that needs to continually be tamed. And even on the positive side, in, in the passions that we have, the convictions that we hold that may be different than another, that too can cause conflict. So it's worth at least beginning there that not all conflict is necessarily bad conflict. Conflict can produce growth and lead us to advancing can shape, sharpen us, shape us, humble us. Not that we need to go looking for conflict. It will find us. But a, a strong and a healthy team of any kind needs passionate people operating according to their gifts and their convictions. And that often stirs up conflict. But if the mission and the vision are aligned, then that conflict can actually produce growth and can be more easily worked through and redeemed. As an example, a good school board is hopefully aligned in mission and vision and is filled with passionate people for the next generation, for raising up and equipping the next, the next students, both for their individual health and thriving, but also knowing for whole communities, even a nation, how important that is. And yet, the how we do that could create incredible tension on that board. Where do we invest resources? Into facilities and technology, into teachers and educators and administrators, into curriculum and systems. And that's probably about as political as I should get because I could mention, how, do, how does the Supreme Court work amidst conflict and advancing when they are aligned in the same mission and vision ultimately for justice for all? I should be able to mention our country and how aligned we are in mission and vision and why, therefore, bipartisanship works well because we know at least we're aligned in mission and vision and where we may have conflict in the hows and the strategies, at least we're going the same place. And actually, it is good and healthy for a nation to advance. But if I bring up those examples, I'll probably just stir up conflict. So I won't do that, and I'll use something much closer to our hearts. We have a pro sports team in our town... <laughs> And everyone in the whole organization is fully committed on the mission and vision to win. It's not the Mariners. I know what you were thinking, but it's, it's not. It's the other team that plays on Sundays. And if you've been a fan at any length for this other team that plays on Sundays, who are all aligned in mission and vision, you know that there's a little bit of conflict in the how that is accomplished. And I'm probably just tipping my hat that I listen to far too much sports radio who are themselves trying to stir up conflict. You know, I've often said to our, our pastor elder team over the years, we need, I, I should have probably have a soapbox in my, in my office. We need a little soapbox and we need to each get on it and proclaim our convictions and our passions. Stir us up because we are aligned in mission and vision and when, when we are, that conflict can be healthy. Get up on the soapbox and proclaim, we, need, we must pray more 
someone else's turn. We must know our Bibles more. Okay, someone else's turn. We must love more. We must worship more. We must reach the lost more. On and on. Stir us up according to your convictions. I think as rightly as said, how do, you, how do you get the best ideas as a team? You promote an environment where all the ideas are heard. In passion, with conviction, and then the best ones chosen. So if we start there with not all conflict is bad, assuming we share the same mission and the same vision, and since we know what our mission and vision is as followers of Christ, mission, go and make disciples of all nations. Vision, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's just a couple ways to capture mission and vision. And since we are aligned, and since no doubt John Mark and Barnabas and Paul were aligned in mission and vision, and yet had this conflict on the how. I can just hear Mark saying, what good will we be to them if we are weary, sick, and worn out? And Paul saying, what good will we be to them if we don't go, if we aren't there? We know that not all conflict is bad, but I know you're probably thinking, great, but most of it is. All those examples, great, but most of the conflict that I've experienced and endured stems from self-centeredness, from sin, from pride, my own, and a lot more the other. <laughs> How can we resolve this kind of conflict that, requ- that it comes from selfishness that is sharp, that is painful? If unity and community are so important for the church, how do we not end up parting ways? By the way, it seems that nothing has changed in 1970 years. I should say this, it's, it's one word. Maybe not the word you want to hear. Humility. That's how. Simple, not easy. It's not, my kingdom come, my will be done. I wrote in my notes, does this even need to be said, question mark? And I think sadly, yeah. Because we don't say it out loud, but we operate that way often. My kingdom come, my will be done. We need one another. The conclusion of this isn't, well, look, even, even Paul and Barnabas had conflict, so it's just how it's going to be, I guess. We will end up having it in parting ways, and God willing, we'll all be unified in heaven. No, unity is so important for the fulfillment of Christ's mission that we must strive, strive for it. You want to fight? Fight for that. You can see last week's sermon. But I've held this conviction, I think, for over a decade. I don't, I don't believe that there's anything that the church does, so therefore, that we do, you, me, that we do worse than resolving conflict, than reconciliation. And it just makes me wonder, why is that? It's at the center of the gospel. It is ultimately the gospel. Reconciliation, healing, forgiveness, mercy. How is it that we are so bad at it? Oh, because it's at the center of the gospel. And we are still at work, aren't we? In process. And Jesus knew how vital this was for the church. He taught on it consistently. He modeled it perfectly. 
in Matthew 18, he gave step-by-step instructions for reconciliation. Read through the Gospels. You want an exercise this week? Read through the Gospels and look for places where Jesus sets policy and procedure. Few and far between. So when it comes up, probably important. And yet, even with policy and procedure set, we still bungle this almost completely and take it out of context so thoroughly. When it comes to sin and reconciliation, Jesus sets policy and procedure. Matthew 18, 15 and following. I I do believe these principles at the highest level for sin, for true, clear sin one to another, they also cover at a lower level any conflict. So add that in as we read it. When Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, if your brother, if you are in conflict with brother or sister, there's usually sin at work. That shouldn't be a surprise, but sometimes it's just not clear. I just, I don't, I'm at conflict. We're at odds, there's hurt. There, I don't know where it is, but I'm at conflict. So add these procedural steps in. Don't just assume, well, that was about sin, so I guess I can just avoid my conflict. Look what happened with Paul and Barnabas. We're called to keep short accounts. So we go to a brother or sister. That's what Jesus says. Go and show him his fault. So we can soften that in the conflict. Reveal, I have conflict. We're at odds. I I, I believe you're more wrong. (laughs) But I submit to you. If your brother or sister listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along. It's an act of humility to go one, one to one. Because there is that submission. I submit to you that there was wrong done here. I'm hurt by this or there's conflict. And rightly, if that person inter- engages with it and says, yeah, I didn't even see that or you're right. I'm convicted. I'm sorry. I, will you forgive me? You are restored. It is that Simple, back to the phrase simple, not easy. It's that simple. But if the other says, I don't agree, I don't see that. I'm not gonna be, I don't wanna be casual about sin, but I don't wanna just say I'm sorry for something I'm not convicted on. I don't know the right posture of humility in return. Can we bring another in? Let's, okay, now we invite others to mediate and to give counsel because we need that one to another. We're stronger together. We need one another. Jesus says, Take the one or two others along. It could be one that both trust well, or if that person can't easily be found, they each find someone that they trust for counsel. They're asking them to speak and give counsel, even point out where I am wrong and don't see it. If I ask you, where are your blind spots? You can't answer that. (laughs) Or there would no longer be blind spots. Then it would just be arrogance. So we need another sometimes to point out what we don't see. So we're, each, we're bringing in these witnesses to establish that. So we share, we bring them in, and, a, and a, a declaration is made. And hopefully both walk in humility and repentance and are restored. But if that one or another, after the witnesses speak and encourage the course of action, still disagrees, still refuses to listen, still demands his way or her way, Tell it to the church. Bring a broader body into the conversation. That's at the end of the line. Often we go and share with any number of people 
the conflict, the sin, we bring the church in before we ever even go one-on-one to our brother, to our sister. And maybe the church is, depending on, this was a small, usually small local house churches, so you think about your life groups, you're bringing your life group into the conversation. Hey, we followed Jesus' instructions, where at this point we're still not reconciled, we're still struggling, we want to be, we need to resolve this conflict, we're bringing in a broader audience for help. This is humble, humble for both and all involved. It's, it's hard sometimes to think about bringing a, a church of a hundred or two hundred or a thousand into the conversation. How do you do that? So in context, the picture is usually a smaller group that knows everyone, at least to some degree, seeking their counsel. So this is Jesus. And then he says, and if that one still refuses after all of that, treat him as you would. Let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. I preached through this even in more detail back in Matthew, I think almost eight years ago. Uh, I believe it's still sound if I preached according to my notes. <laughs> so you can look that up if you're interested. Um, amazing that we have these policies and these procedures and yet we still can bungle this so completely. In fact, verse 20 of Matthew 18, maybe what, you know, there may not be another verse taken out of context more than Matthew 18 verse 20, which I'm I'm guessing most of you know. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among you. There am I with you. Powerful promise. What is Jesus talking about? Not a prayer gathering, not a Bible study, not a Sunday school, not a mission trip. He's talking about reconciliation and forgiveness. That's the context. Please take the time to understand the context of Jesus' words, especially with policy and procedure. Uh, A scalpel can be used for great healing or it can cause death. Depends on how it's used. And it seems that the church is suffering and dividing, if not in some cases dying, because it does not know how to resolve conflict and to reconcile, or worse, it will not. There's two other resources which if you're in this place or feel trapped or stuck here, and if you're not, you probably will at some point, and I just encourage you toward these resources. Alliance Pastor David Fitch wrote a book called Faithful Presence. Our ministry team went through it last year, uh, just trying to help us see church in the 21st century, maybe with more open eyes. Some very, I think, timely, uh, encouraging applications, but he wrote a chapter on reconciliation basically centered around verse 20, where two or more are gathered in, in and for reconciliation, for healing, for forgiveness, for mercy, where, where two or more are gathered in that place, there I am, which makes sense. That's the ministry of the gospel. That's, that's what he came for. And so David Fitch writes on this concept, and I, th- I think that chapter on Jesus' presence, faithful presence, presence with his people, his church, in reconciliation, may be his best chapter. I, I strongly encourage you. It's this phrase of mutual submission uh, that became powerful for their church. I think was powerful to me. I submit to you. Here's my perspective. I submit this to you. What don't I see? I know I'm not always right. I know I have blind spots. But this is my perspective. Here's my heart. Here's my conviction. I submit to you and I submit to others. It's a humble act. 
and it's, I think, powerfully at work here. David Fitch said this in, in that chapter. He said, reconciliation is at the core of what God has done and is doing in the world in and through Jesus Christ. Reconciliation is so central to the good news of what God has done in Christ that to see no reconciliation in our churches suggests there is no gospel in them. Reconciliation marks our presence in the world. And so it makes sense that an enemy would be at work dividing, distracting, breaking. And if there's no reconciliation, no wonder the world would say, why would I want any part of that group when our world so desperately needs reconciliation and everyone knows it? Ken Sandy wrote a book called The Peacemaker. It's probably the gold standard uh, today on reconciliation. He uses Paul and Barnabas and John Mark in this situation to highlight a lot of things. Very, very powerful tool. I encourage you toward that and if you would like to go deeper. Allow me two heart-level applications and only two and fairly brief because that's the time that we have. I hope they're convictions. For resolving conflict Jesus' way, just in case you need it today or after this service ends, you need to make a phone call or a visit or have a conversation with someone in your own home. Resolving conflict Jesus' way. According to Jesus, conflict among believers never ends in separation. It's another way that Matthew 18 is taken out of context. We get to the end of it and say, okay, he won't listen, she won't listen, I'm done with him, I'm done with her. Or within the church, kick him out. Excommunication. That's not what that phrase means. Let them be to you as a tax collector. It could be translated as a sinner, a Gentile, a non-believer. Someone that will not engage in the process of reconciliation, of repentance and forgiveness. When others in a group are saying, we see this and you must, you must repent. Seek forgiveness. It's the core of the gospel. One that will not do that is like an unbeliever. How could they bear the name Christian, little Christ? It's so central to the gospel. But what did Jesus, how did Jesus interact with unbelievers, with tax collectors, and with sinners? He spent almost all of his time with them. He pursued them. He loved them. He spoke hard words often to them, but he ate with them. He fellowshiped with them. This isn't excommunication. The relationship will change if there's no repentance or no reconciliation, but it does not need to end. So hear that. I suppose there's always an asterisk if there's some form of danger or harm that's in play. There may need to be a removal from relationship. I, I understand there's, there's certainly exceptions, but the, the main heart of this is brokenness. And when there's brokenness, when there's no reconciliation, the relationship changes, but it does not need to end. And Prayer and love and pursuit only continues if not grows as we seek and pray for that time of reconciliation to fully come. Second, with that in mind, if it's, we can't just easily be done with this, we must keep working at it. Second, according to Jesus, the mercy we have received is the beginning of reconciliation. The mercy we have received is the beginning of reconciliation. Not the other person's sin or fault. Where it seems like in this passage, that's where we begin. If someone sins against you, oh, sin, hurt, conflict, 
We begin there, now we must go through reconciliation. No, the mercy we have received is the beginning of reconciliation. Because the rest of this chapter, as Jesus sets out policy and procedure, he then teaches a parable, which he often did, to describe what was going on. And the parable is often titled, and probably in your scripture, Matthew 18, the unforgiving servant. It should be titled, the merciful king. Because the story is about the forgiveness of a king that is so extravagant, it blows everyone's mind. A servant had such an incredible debt owed to this king, he could never pay it back. And he begged in apparent repentance for his debt to be canceled, and the king forgave it all. And Jesus basically says, this is how you forgive others. My mercy is that deep, yours must be. And he teaches this picture that if we don't remember our position as that servant with a debt accrued so great against our holy God that we could never repay it, and yet it has been wiped out. It has been forgiven by the mercy of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. If we forget that, then no wonder division abounds and bitterness festers, quarrels and sharp disputes reign. When King Jesus reigns and reminds us how to enter into and approach reconciliation, the mercy we have received. We don't first look at the other's sin, the speck in their eye. We recognize the plank in our own. And that's the only way we can enter in with humility and this mutual submission. I have been forgiven so much, but I know we're in conflict and I believe there is sin here. And I just long for reconciliation, to extend the ministry of the gospel, for forgiveness to take place, for mercy to be extended. With that posture, we pursue reconciliation. And for some of us, we need to do that today. And for some of us, we need to correct the ways we've been trying to pursue conflict resolution because they haven't been according to Christ's way. Another opportunity for humility. But the chance to proclaim the gospel in and through reconciliation, there may not be a greater opportunity for a lost and broken world desperate for reconciliation to see it happen. Full restoration may, may not take place, though we might work continually for it. But reconciliation can at least be faithful to pursue as Jesus has pursued us. I'm sure that we all have work that we could do in relationships, and probably some come to mind. But as we respond today, because most likely we can't start this reconciliation process in this moment, maybe not even today. Maybe it's going to take much time. How do we respond now? The first and most important thing is that we are reconciled to our King. That somehow, if we have forgotten the ministry of His mercy and the extravagance of it in our life, we would repent to Him and say, Jesus, forgive me. I've somehow lost sight of it. I've forgotten it. And we receive it as we come to the table and be reminded that the, the brokenness of Jesus is what brings healing to us and ultimately then to relationships. That He has given His life shed His blood that we might have life in Him and life to the full. Paul does talk about 
the dangers of coming casually to the communion table when brokenness and conflict and sin and no reconciliation has taken place in our relationships. He says, do not do that. Come humbly. Examine your heart. And so if you are there sitting thinking, I don't, I don't know of any deep conflict that I have. Praise God. But ask him, Lord, search my heart and is there something that I must pursue? And maybe you don't come to the table because you know you haven't been praying along that, those lines and you want to be faithful. As far as it depends on you to pursue that reconciliation in the week ahead before coming casually to the table of reconciliation. And maybe for some, you are so convicted to do that then the table is yet open to you to receive again as you go this week with the conviction to pursue that reconciliation. This is a table of grace and freedom for all who are desiring to walk like Jesus and follow Him in His mercy. And so it is open. And we're going to sing songs of praise and proclamation. Again, let them be prayers. Prayers of confession, prayers of adoration, prayers of thanksgiving. So I'll invite the team to come and be prepared to lead us in that response. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so with that, let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the grittiness of it, the realness of it. It shows us men and women struggling and striving to serve You, to honor You, to follow You, to obey You, and yet still needing to be refined by You, needing desperately the power and presence of the Spirit in their lives and in their relationships. And I thank You that we are encouraged. We are not alone. Not much has changed. We wish it was different. But we still fight and struggle and quarrel and divide and have conflict. Lord, help us see with Your eyes and with Your heart. Lord, remind us deeply of the mercy the cost of mercy, the cost of grace that Jesus, you paid on the cross and you said it is finished. It's finished work and the hope that we have of reconciliation, the promise we have of it with you as we come and we confess and we say, Jesus, help. I need your mercy anew. I need your grace anew today. We receive as we come to the table, as we proclaim these praises to you. I pray specifically for each one. Only you, Lord, know the depth of conflict or even the angst within hearts here of reconciliation that has not taken place, of conflict that has not been resolved. And for some in this room, they've pursued it faithfully according to your word and it is not reconciled. And I pray, Lord, for you to be honored and glorified, for you to speak clearly in conviction, not in guilt, but clearly if there's more to be done. And in some cases, yes. And in some cases, no. And they're waiting. The work to be done is waiting and praying, and trusting. And Lord, I pray for right conviction for those of us that know what we must do in the week ahead, that we would not wane in that, that we would be faithful with your encouragement and your grace. We would extend mercy and put us, Lord, in that posture of humility, open hands with mutual submission, seeking the presence of Jesus to be with us that a proclamation of reconciliation, both for our joy and encouragement, but for a lost world in desperation to see it. 
Bring it, Lord. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth, in our lives, in our families, in this church, as it is in heaven. Please, Lord. We continue these prayers in song. Lead us, team.